So we'll go ahead and get started in a word of prayer and commit our time to our Heavenly Father. Our Father, we thank you for the power of your word. You told us that we were not born again of perishable seed, but through imperishable seed, the living and abiding word of God. And we thank you, too, that you instructed us like newborn babes to long for the pure milk of the word so that we can grow by it. Uh, Lord Jesus, you said, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. We think of the words that you penned, Spirit of God, by the Apostle Paul to preach and teach sound or healthy doctrine. And we know that doctrine is a representation of what the Godhead is like. So teach us tonight. Be our teacher. Illumine the truth that is here. Help us to understand it and to know how it is that we should be changed by it and how we should apply it. You've entrusted to us, our Father, a commission by your Son to go into all the world and to teach all that he has entrusted to us. And we know that what we are studying in these days are critical to that whole process. So I pray for all the families that are here, all the dads that are watching, those who have been called to shepherd their families, that they would see to it that their sons and their daughters get full exposure to these things in these days. We ask it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. All right, tonight we are on topic number three, uh, part three, topic number three. There's 21 handouts before we're finished. There will be sometimes some breaks between handouts with different people speaking. Um, but 21 handouts by the time you're done, and a handout may take anywhere from one week to five weeks, depending on which one we are dealing with. This is the third week, topic three. Let's just briefly review, and then we'll dig in with, uh, uh, with our minds and hearts for God to help us. Uh, we have several objectives, seven that are listed there on page one. And if you are joining us for the first time, this handout gets a little bit longer every week because we're covering new ground. But for the sake of those who are with us for the first time, you have the previous notes. We want to understand the meaning of baptism, especially as it relates to the Great Commission. We want to think about the various uses of terms for baptism in the New Testament. The word baptism isn't always in reference to water, and so we will examine those before we're done. We'll look at, even tonight, some erroneous views on, on baptism, some who have taught that it is necessary to salvation or is part of the plan of salvation. We'll distinguish between paleo and credo baptism. Uh, we hope to discern from the Bible the timing and mode of baptism and to ask and answer some very commonly asked questions in this realm. Uh, Roman number one that we've already covered, what is the meaning of baptism and how does it relate to the Great Commission? Roman numeral two, we asked and answered the question, does baptism have any part in salvation? And that's where we focused last week, that baptism does not save or help save a person, point A. And we looked at some illustrations of people who were saved apart from baptism, specifically the immoral woman, uh, one of four, who anointed the Lord Jesus, or one of four attempts, I should say, one of three women. Some, um, I should say, conflate Mary of Bethany with this, but I gave you some reasons why that's near impossible and why historically the church has not held that position, though a few popular study Bibles teach that. But nonetheless, this woman was saved by her faith. 
not by any work that she did. She showed her love for Christ, not in order to earn forgiveness or to earn favor, but because she had found it by his grace and mercy. Then we looked at the parable of two men going up to the temple to pray, one a tax collector, the other a Pharisee. One went home justified, the other went home dignified. One went home saved, the other went home lost. One humbled himself before God and received the mercy of God. And the other, in his arrogance and in his self-righteousness, misses the kingdom. Then we looked at the thief on the cross. And I often ask the children when they come into the office, can you think of one person in the New Testament who went to heaven but did not get baptized? And it stumps a lot of them. Occasionally, those children who are listening will say the thief on the cross. And that's right. So there were three Jewish men hanging on three crosses, Christ in the middle from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Two initially that curse him, according to Matthew's account. They do what the scribes and Pharisees did. They blasphemed him. Blasphemao is the word. They literally blasphemed Jesus to his face. But of course, we've already studied that blasphemy can be forgiven, even blasphemy against the Son. There's only one unforgivable sin, as we studied earlier in the first topic on eternal security, and that's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But once man somehow in the mercy and grace of God put things together, and he went from cursing Christ to confessing Christ. Probably as a Jewish man, he grew up going to the synagogue. Maybe he went to the temple. How pious he was, we don't know. But he had garnered enough information so that he understood that someday Messiah would come. And so he says to his friend, this one has done nothing wrong. We're just getting what we deserve. He recognized Jesus as the Messiah, as Isaiah prophesied, who knew no sin, without sin, in him was no sin. Isaiah 53 articulates those three New Testament statements in a single verse. And he realized that the one hanging next to him was sinless. And so he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He realized that Jesus had a kingdom that it was not over for him that day, that he would just not just be heaved in some common grave like most crucified victims outside of the city, but that he would have a kingdom, that he had to be the one that the prophets wrote of who would be raised from the dead. And of course, Christ died in this dispensation, uh, the, the thief died in this dispensation. Jesus died on the other side of the cross, so to speak, and that when they came to him, he was already dead. Again, no one would take his life, he would give it. He sovereignly said into my, your hands, Father, I commit your, my spirit. But with the other two men, they had to break their legs. Had Christ's legs been broken, we saw that he would not have been the Messiah because there are hundreds of prophecies, not only that are specific in their statements, but also by type and illustration. And one such prophecy, of course, was the Passover lamb. They couldn't use any kind of lamb but an unblemished lamb. And not a bone would be broken when they ate the lamb. And not a bone of the lamb of God would be broken. And so in God's providence, it was just another sovereign prophecy being fulfilled. And so that man called upon Christ in faith, and Jesus said he was saved. Of course, apart from baptism now, if he could have pulled the nails out of his hands and feet, he would have done anything for Jesus. He couldn't. But we can. Then we looked at the Philippian jailer. 
who likewise, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. And then afterwards, he and his house, and we'll talk about household baptism next time, we're all baptized. And then tonight, we, move, we got into this point C, baptism is separated from the plan of salvation. Paul says in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And so if the gospel is God's power to save us, we want to know what the gospel is. He definitively expresses that the gospel is that Christ died, was buried, and was raised. And in that same letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1.17, he reminds them that Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. In other words, he clearly separated baptism from the gospel. So anyone who makes it a part of the gospel, in, in some churches they say, repent, believe, confess, be baptized, four steps to being saved. No, there's not. Now, repentance and belief are the flip side of the same coin. That's why when Peter is asked by the Jewish people, brethren, what must we do? In one word, he says, repent. When Paul is asked, what must I do to be saved? In one word, he says, believe, because it's impossible to believe without repenting. And of course, in the one New Testament gospel that was written not only for believers, but with an evangelistic stated purpose in mind. Many other miracles, John will write, Jesus did in the presence of these disciples, but these were written that you might believe, what? That Jesus is the Messiah. And of course, not once does the word repent appear in that gospel. And yet it's impossible to believe without repenting. When we come to Christ, we're coming for the forgiveness of sin. We're willing to acknowledge sin as sin, that it's wrong and it needs changing. And if we're not really willing to do that, we don't really need a Savior. And then um, uh, here we come tonight. We began point number three. Uh, what verses do people use to teach that baptism saves? We left off on Acts 2.38. We didn't quite finish it. So let me just review, and we'll dig into some new material from that verse. Again, just by way of introduction to add anything to the Gospels to say that Jesus' death on the cross was not sufficient to purchase our salvation. To teach that we must be baptized in order to be saved is to invalidate the sufficiency of the saving power of Christ's death and resurrection. You know, sometimes, you know, we think of our Roman Catholic friends who, if you were to put their view of salvation into an equation, they would say faith in Christ plus good deeds equals salvation. And in their category of good deeds, they have a multiplicity of deeds. Where in the New Testament equation, it would be faith in Christ alone equals salvation plus good deeds. That good deeds are on the right side, a byproduct of salvation but not the means to it. So there's a huge difference. But I underscore that for the simple reason is that sometimes people who call themselves Christians add a single deed, not 20 or 50, but one deed. And that was the error of the false teacher who had entered the Galatian church. Today, sometimes it's church membership or baptism or something in addition to Jesus. And in that scenario, Paul says that invalidates the gospel. It's another gospel, a different gospel, a false gospel. 
and those that teach that are to me anathema. So any verse that any verses that are used to try to prove that baptism saves must be understood in the broader context of the Bible. Since the Bible never contradicts itself, the diligent student of Scripture will discover that there is always a clear explanation for verses people use to falsely teach that baptism saves. Now, there are four principal verses that people use to teach that baptism saves, and we're looking at all four. Of course, one of the headquarters verses is Acts 2.38, which does not contradict Ephesians 2.8.9 that says we're saved by grace. So again, Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, they asked the question, what must we do, brethren? He just uh, validated that Jesus is the Messiah. They saw a miracle, thousands of people came to gather and to watch. Uh, a loud wind that had come into the city, but there was no wind. They were just captivated by the noise. 120 spilled out from the upper room. And what appeared to be like tongues of fire rested on each one. In addition, they spoke languages that people knew they didn't know prior to this. They knew that they were, you know, uh, folks who had not learned these languages. And they spoke not only the language, but the dialect within the language, that, that's the miracle. That's uh, very, very different from what we see being practiced today by some Pentecostal and charismatic so-called Christians. With that said, some mocked, said they're drunk. Peter said it's only 9 a.m. People don't get drunk at 9 a.m. They're not drunk. This is what the Spirit of God wrote by the prophet Joel would happen in the last days. So the last days, according to Peter, began on the day of Pentecost, and that Christ could come at any moment since Pentecost. It was imminent. Now, I think we're in the last of the last days, and sometimes the term last days is used in the Old Testament to refer to the end of the age, typically the term latter days, and in the New Testament, latter days is always used in reference to those final days before the Messiah returns, what we call the second coming. So you know, of course, that the second coming is a prophecy-driven event, the rapture of the church is not. And so he said, this is what Joel the prophet said. And this was a living fulfillment, and he walks them through what the prophet David said. We think of King David only as a king, but he was also a prophet. He filled two offices, and he reminded them what he had written in the Psalms, and, and they realized it was true. And they're pierced to the heart, the text says. Brethren, what must we do? Peter said, repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, again, the term for the forgiveness of sins, for the forgiveness of sins, sometimes has been used erroneously to justify water baptism as a means to salvation. However, when, the word, when one uses the word for in this passage, much like it is used every day in conventional or conversational English, we can easily understand and apply what Peter meant. When we state a man is arrested for stealing or that one is grateful for a favor or that one is blamed for carelessness or commended for bravery, how are we using the word for in English in those kinds of sentences? Certainly we do not mean to take the last example, one is commended in order to be brave, but rather 
One is commended because he is brave. So I don't give you a medal in order to be brave. I give you a medal because you're brave. Even so, the word for does not mean in order to secure the forgiveness of sins and is not rendered that way in any English translation of the Bible. The Greek word eis, E-I-S, as it's transliterated, almost looks like that in, uh, in Greek, doesn't it? Um, epsilon, iota, sigma. Uh, here translated for is sometimes translated in the Bible against, among, at, upon, onto. Let me give you an example. Luke eleven thirty two. we're told that the people of Nineveh repented at, same little word, ace. They repented at or because of the preaching of Jonah. Let me read that verse. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation of the judgment and condemn it because they repented at, ace, same word in Acts 2.38. They repented at, or you could say because of, the preaching of Jonah. Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Likewise, we are to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, meaning not in order to be forgiven, but rather because we are forgiven. Point nine there, we are baptized as a public expression of our faith to say that we are unashamed of the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior. We'll discuss that a little bit later next time. The misuse of the word for is an issue only in the, in the English Bible. For when other languages across the world translate Acts 2.38, it is crystal clear that baptism in no way contributes to our salvation. So this course that has been translated into other languages, it's a non-issue. It's a non-issue in all the Slavic languages. It's a non-issue in Hindu. It's a non-issue in uh, just a multiplicity of languages across the world. Because It's just a play on words in English in our minds. But if you meet Christians in other parts of the world using Acts 2.38, this is not a problem. Interestingly, when the plural and singular aspects, and, and I'm sure there's some other language that would parallel English here, because there's some 7,000 languages in the world, but generally speaking, uh, it's not a problem. Interestingly, when the plural and singular aspects of the verbs and nouns are isolated from the Greek translation, it becomes impossible to say that baptism is a means to receiving the forgiveness of sin. So here's Acts 2.38. Let's step to it. Repent. That's a verb. It's the second person plural verb. So it's second person plural, meaning you plural repent, whose plural meaning in this context means all of you Jews who are listening, you're speaking to a whole group, thousands of people, need to repent or change your mind, which is, again, what the word repent means. It means to change your mind. And as we've noted already, it's used in different ways in the New Testament. Sometimes a man is called to repent of his self-righteousness. Sometimes a person is called to repent on their view of who Jesus is. It means different things in different contexts. just means to change your mind. Now, we sometimes infuse meaning into the word that's not necessarily in the text or in the context. We say, well, clean up your act so you can come to Christ. Impossible. The one who sins is a slave to sin. But you come to Christ so that he can clean up your act, so that he can change you. In this context, repent or change your mind what you said about Jesus. For you said he was only a man when the Scripture just preached reveals that he is the God-man. 
So he's saying all of you need to repent for ace or for the purpose of the forgiveness of sins. In you, it's second plural, you all will receive the Spirit. Then based on the Greek grammar, Peter parenthetically adds, and each of you, singular, be baptized, which is a testimony to your faith. So clearly in the context and in the context of, of Acts and the rest of the Bible, forgiveness of sins is linked to repentance and not the act of baptism. In other words, it's not crystal clear in our English Bible, but it's crisp in Greek. There's a parenthetical statement in the Greek text, repent for the forgiveness of your sin, or you could say believe for the forgiveness of your sins, to put it in Paul's language. In mentioning again baptism in the name of Jesus, Peter is not denying the baptismal formula issued by Christ in Matthew 28, 19, but emphasizing to these people their need to acknowledge Jesus whom they denied. So he's asking them to identify with Jesus. Why? Because they had rejected Jesus. But in saying that, I don't think when they baptized here on the birthday of the church, right outside of the Temple Mount, that's where they were, that's where this event took place. It's not the same room that, uh, you know, Pentecost took place. This is, there's some time that has transpired, and where would the Jews be on Pentecost? They'd be right where they were supposed to be, at the Temple. And so they're at the temple when this whole miracle takes place. So this is different, I say, from the upper room on the night that Christ was uh, betrayed. This is Pentecost. This is some days later. And it was on this day that the Spirit of God came on the birthday of the church. And so they have to identify with the one whom they rejected. So again, I don't think when they baptized 3,000 that they said, we baptize you in the name of Jesus. I think they did precisely what Christ had already commanded them to do on the mountain in Galilee, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But he is speaking to where these people are at. You rejected Jesus. You said he was only a man. You crucified the Prince of Glory. You've read the sermon. Now identify with him. Confess him as Lord. Okay, Mark 16, 16. This would be the second major verse that's used and abused to say that baptism saves. Mark 16, 16 does not make baptism a requirement to be saved. Let's read the verse. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. So this is, again, a favorite verse of Church of Christ the Christian church denomination, disciples of Christ. And, and there's always exceptions to these denominations, but broadly speaking, these are three major denominations in the United States that make baptism part of the plan of salvation. Jesus was not teaching that baptism saves you, for then the verse would have read, he who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but the second half would read, but he who is disbelieved and not been baptized shall be condemned. So clearly, this was a combined promise of salvation and a warning. Think your way through this. Jesus did not say that condemnation belonged to the one who was not baptized, but only to the one who does not believe. You see that in the verse? He says, he who has believed and has been baptized... That person has the genuine item. 
They've believed, they've proved they've believed by their baptism. That person will be saved. But the one who is not believed, he is lost. He doesn't say, he doesn't say in two steps who has not believed and not been baptized the one who has not believed. So Jesus did not say that condemnation belonged to the one who is not baptized, but only to the one who does not believe. The Lord never mentions baptism as a basis of condemnation for the simple reason that salvation is based on our faith in Jesus, who by his grace already has paid for our sins. A shallow reading of Mark 16, 16 will conclude that lost people must be baptized to be saved because Christ's emphasis is on believing, which causes this misinterpretation and misapplication of this verse to disappear. The emphasis is on faith, as in all Christ's teachings and as throughout the New Testament. If a person does not believe in the Lord Jesus, then and only then is he condemned, even if he has been baptized. People are baptized all the time who have not believed, right? They're, they're lost. They'd just gotten wet. The Lord Jesus assumed a child of God would publicly confess their faith. Matthew 10, 32, if someone will not confess me before men, I'll not confess them before my Father in heaven. So we're at a point in the church where there's not all this ambiguity of what baptism is about. Maybe, and it's a stretch to say in 198 AD that there's the first incident of infant baptism. It's a stretch. You really have to read into that historical account. It's an extra-biblical account. But for the most part, it's not until the late 4th century in the 390s that infant baptism begins to unfold. Why? Why? Why for 300 years were no infants baptized? Because there wasn't any, uh, you know, dysfunctional thought in that day. People could just read the plain, simple Scripture and come to one conclusion. I've been to some countries of the world, and a question that the pastors have asked me is, how do people come up with infant baptism? Because they're in a place where it's not practiced, and they can't figure out how people come up with it. Where we live in a country where the tradition, and that's what it is, it's a tradition, not to say that every tradition is wrong, but if the tradition is not rooted in biblical truth, then it's erroneous. But we live in a country where the tradition of infant baptism is prevalent. But when you put the emphasis where Christ does, then it really dissolves the misinterpretation and the misapplication of this verse. Six, if a person does not believe in the Lord Jesus, then and only then is he condemned, even if he has been baptized. Seven, the Lord Jesus assumed you would confess Christ. How was it done? By baptism. You'll confess me before man. How did you do that? By baptism. That was your public confession of faith. You got baptized. You were saying, I'm unashamed of Jesus. So if you take Matthew 10, 32, if you won't confess me before men, and you put it with a verse like Mark 16, 16, he who believes in publicly confesses me before men. How? By baptism. That's how you did it. That was your confession of faith, as the writer of the Hebrews articulates. That's how you confess Jesus as Lord. Certainly, there are people today who have been saved, but who have never confessed their faith by believer's baptism. 
Not because they are rebellious, but because they do not understand its importance. So, you know, we've got Presbyterian brothers of the conservative, by conservative I mean Bible-believing stripe, because a lot of Presbyterians in our nation are no longer Bible-believing. The southern branch united with the northern branch about two decades ago. The northern branch has been ordaining now for 30 years men that don't even believe in the deity of Christ. It's not a prerequisite to ordination in the northern church. They combined with the southern branch. They became the PCUSA. And of course, they affirm gay marriage and all other kinds of heresies. Um, But then there's conservative Presbyterians who believe the same gospel that Christians have historically affirmed for 2,000 years, and yet they teach infant baptism. Now, we'll talk about that next time. How do they come to that conclusion? Because obviously, they believe in the authority of the Bible, so they're going to try to make an argument from Scripture. But with that said, there are people, obviously, who have believed and not been baptized, and they're going to go to heaven. Do they publicly identify with Jesus? Yes. Do they publicly identify with him by baptism? Obviously not. An infant is not making a public confession of his faith of any kind. You say, well, what if someone says they're born again and really comes to grips that the biblical confession of faith done after conversion is baptism and they refuse to obey, then you have to wonder, well, do they really know the Lord? You know, when I hear Ligon Duncan or R.C. Sproul, who's now in heaven, and these guys give their, you know, polemic for infant baptism, they really believe it. I mean, they're just... They dig their heels in. But what if someone through the study of Scripture says, you know, I guess my denomination is wrong and the biblical pattern really... And by the way, about 90% of evangelicals worldwide practice what we call credo or post-conversion baptism. They don't practice infant baptism. Now, you have it amongst Catholics and Episcopalians and some other groups, but today, 90%, according to missiologists, the U.S. Center for World Missions, they practice post-conversion baptism. Why? Because that's the simple reading of Scripture. You don't have to be educated, and I'll show you how they will educate someone into infant baptism. It's kind of like you have to be educated into a limited redemption, that Jesus didn't die for everybody that he just died for a select people, that the atonement was limited or particular only to the elect. You have to be educated into that. You would never come up with that on your own simply by reading Scripture. That's why for centuries no one believed it. And I would say, as I hope to show you next week, the same is true with infant baptism. It is unfortunate, number nine, that God's order to believe and then be baptized here in Mark 16 has been totally reversed by some believers who baptize infants, and then later, when they hear the gospel, they ask them to believe. By the way, there's a real deficit in that. And here's the deficit. You know, you're raised in a conservative, Bible-believing, Presbyterian denomination, and the parents make a covenant with God, and they, and they baptize their little ones. And just years go by, 
And there's never really a call to make a decision, typically. I mean, they're not invitational in any way, and, and I've heard the argument, I think it's vain and empty that the invitation is only 200 years old, and I can easily argue that away. But lay that aside. There's not a call, even in baptism, to make a decision. You know, why do some children come into my office or approach their parents and say, I want to go see Pastor Carl by being baptized. Because they see folks up here getting baptized. And that's one of the functions of the symbol. Why do you stack 12 rocks when you come out of the Red Sea? Why do you stack 12 rocks when you come out of the Jordan River? So that when your kids come by and say, Dad, what do those 12 rocks mean? You say, well, this is what it means. This is when God split the Red Sea. This is when God split the Jordan River. And there's a function and a purpose. Why do, we, why do we do this with the lamb every Passover? Well, let me explain it to you. And that's one of the functions of the visible ordinance of baptism that God has. You don't have that in a Presbyterian church. You don't have a 12-year-old saying, I want to get baptized like that six-week-old is. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's a total reversal. It just doesn't happen. And so sometimes, and you know, because there's, there's not a call at a point in time to make a decision that you end up potentially raising some children who don't make a decision. Now, they would say in the opposite argument, and there's validity to it, is that, you know, you've got... Baptists and those who practice post-conversion baptism who are always calling for a decision. And that's what you get, a decision, but not a conversion. And that's an abuse on the opposite end. That's why we assume nothing if someone comes down. All I assume is God's working in their heart. Even if someone comes down and says, you know, I received Christ this morning, many times they have, but many times they have it. Many times, yeah, I received Christ this morning. They come to meet the pastor that night. How sure are you? 50%. Why should God let you in? And I don't know, or I'm trying harder. So whatever they did, they didn't make a decision, but they were responding to everything they knew, and the Spirit of God was working and drawing and bringing them to Himself. So with that said, number 10, it would be terribly wrong to minimize the importance of baptism is non-essential. Just to conclude it doesn't save, it would be terribly wrong to minimize the importance of baptism is non-essential because while baptism is non-essential to one's salvation, it is absolutely essential to one's obedience. Since the Lord Jesus told the true believer to be baptized after he believes, we must do it because he commands it. All right, third major problematic text, so to speak, that people use to teach that baptism saves is 1 Peter 3.21. And 1 Peter 3.21 does not teach that baptism removes sin. Let's read it. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The key to understanding this verse is the phrase corresponding to that. Because the word corresponding is the Greek word antitupos, which gives us our English word anatype, a word used in some translations. That's the way it's translated in the Old King James, the New King James, the Young's Literal Translation, and other, other such translations. It gives us our word anatype. Let me read it from the New King James, next page. There is also an antitype, 
which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So baptism, immersion, which is what the word means, and we'll discuss that a little bit further, is an antitype or a mirror image of an earlier type, namely Noah's Ark. That's what he's been discussing. We should probably read the passage. Go to 1 Peter for a second. All right, 1 Peter. I know there are always new people to the Bible, and they're not always familiar with these passages, and I, I, I'm not trying to insult anyone's intelligence, but I can't assume anything, and we'll teach it just like we were teaching it in the discovery class. In verse 17, just to give you the flow, for it is better if, if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just, that's him, for the unjust, or just for unjust, literally. You can see the italics, meaning the article is not present, but we added here to smooth it out. The just him for us, the unjust. Why? Here's the reason. So that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which in His Spirit He went and made proclamation of the Spirit's now in prison. So Christ went on a preaching mission, if you remember, between His death and His resurrection. He doesn't say He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the flesh. He's going to affirm that at the end of the chapter, but He is speaking of an event prior to that. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and made proclamation of the Spirit's now in prison. What spirits? What people? People, verse 20, who, were, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So we went to some persons. What kind of persons? Human persons? No, angelic persons. Angels are persons too. They have the attributes of person. Mind, will, and emotions. They're not human persons. They're made lower than us, so for the time they are over us, but someday we will judge angels, Paul will affirm. We are the highest aspect of God's creation, the Bible affirms. But there was a group of angels, the B'nai Elohim, sons of God, as they're called in Genesis 6, who attempted to cohabitate with the daughters of men. And they committed such a heinous sin that Peter tells us in his second letter and Jude tells us in his letter that they are in eternal bonds of darkness, that there's a class of fallen angels who, unlike those that we read about in Daniel 10 or Ephesians 6, who have freedom to wage war in the heavenly places, there's one class of angels that are in eternal bonds. They have no freedom to wage war. We studied another class of angels, even who are in the abyss, and someday the abyss will be opened up during the time of the Great Tribulation. And those people have done, those people angels have done some really heinous things. Remember, they begged Christ there at Gennesaret, 
Please don't send us into the abyss. Remember that occasion? But there was one group of angels that did not witness what Colossians says. Colossians says that by the death and resurrection of Christ, he made a spectacle of the angelic world. But there was one group he didn't hear. And God wanted the entire angelic realm to know. Those even in the deepest caverns in a place called Tartarus, it's a specific compartment of hell that rebelled during the days of Noah. Corresponding to that, to Noah and his ark in which eight persons were saved, there's our verse. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So again, point two back on your handout, baptism or immersion is an antitype or a mirror image of an earlier type, namely Noah's ark and the flood, a type or a picture or typological prophecy of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Peter does not say that baptism saves us, but that baptism corresponds or is in the ESV, it, uh, or in the Net Bible, it prefigures. The ESV says it corresponds. Here it says it prefigures in the Net Bible, and that it pictures or symbolizes an antitype of that which does save us. This is further clarified, clarified by the words that follow, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, because baptism can't do that, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Peter is very careful to note that it is not the actual water of baptism that saves us, but rather the spiritual reality behind the immersion. Water on the body or the body placed in water cannot remove the stain of sin. Only the blood of Christ can do that. We studied that in topic number two from 1 John 1 in chapter two as well. It's not your baptism that saves you, but appealing to God in faith for a new life provided through the death and resurrection of Christ. When a person is baptized or immersed, they picture this great truth. So again, this is a favorite verse, and I should say not just of Church of Christ, but also of our Roman Catholic friends. This is one of the verses that they use, Acts 2.38, and, and this text from 1 Peter. But it's an antitype. It, it's, there's a correspondence between what happened in Noah's day and what happens in baptism. All right, the next major text that's used is Acts 22.16. And it does not teach either that baptism washes away sin. I'll go to Acts 22 for a moment. Paul is uh, giving his testimony. There are three places in the book of Acts where Paul shares how he came to know Christ as his Savior. When we teach our course on basic evangelism, we talk about how to write a personal testimony. We do so based on how Paul gave his testimony from the three passages found here in the book of Acts. Um, he is giving his defense, um, and notice what he says. Let's pick it up in verse 17. It happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance, and I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I also was standing by approving. 
and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. They listened to him uh, up to this statement, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow. So I want you to see just the broad context here. Here's the Apostle Paul. He is uh, a godly man. He recites his conversion, how he met the Lord Jesus. But notice one verse that precedes this testimony in verse 16. Um, He is, again, saying how he met Christ on the road to Uh, Damascus, and he saw this great light, and a certain man, verse 12, Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near to me, said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. At that very time, I looked at him. He said, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. But did these people listen to this defense? Absolutely not. They got to the point where we said, we can't hear anymore. But again, this verse is given in the context of Paul's personal testimony. Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins. There it is. Wash away your sins. That's what baptism does. And so it becomes a salvation verse. So let's step through it. Number one there, D1, knowing that Paul did not receive the gospel from Ananias, but directly from Christ, Galatians 1, 11, and 2 tell me that the apostle Paul had already heard the plan of salvation. We're on the Damascus road. He said in his defense of his apostleship to the Galatian church, for I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, which would mean Ananias, nor was I taught it by anybody, not even Ananias, but I received it how? Through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So the phrase here, going back to our verse, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. The phrase wash away your sins is not grammatically connected to arise and be baptized, but to calling on the name of the Lord. Arise, calling on the name of the Lord. So again, I think this will make sense as we step through this. This is a challenging verse. It's not an easy verse, but you can, you can understand it. We all can. The actual washing away of Saul's sins came the moment he called in faith on the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, such that his baptism becomes a symbolic act, which depicts that cleansing. The calling on the name of the Lord is synonymous with faith in Christ. How do I know that? Well, he taught that in Romans 10, 13, and 14, when he quotes the prophet Joel, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So calling on the name of the Lord is an expression of faith, such that it was Saul's faith that affected the washing away of his sins and not his baptism. So capturing this thought, it's a paraphrase, but the New Living Translation renders it. What are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized. Have your sins washed away by calling on the name of the Lord. In this case, Paul's calling on Christ's name for salvation preceded his water baptism. Again, in Acts 9.17, 
When Paul gives his testimony in that chapter of Scripture, he was filled with the Holy Spirit ever before he was baptized, which tells you what? He was born again before he was baptized. And of course, he's filled with the Spirit repeatedly, as are the apostles. In his expanded translation of the New Testament, the Greek scholar Kenneth Wust puts it this way, having arisen, be baptized and wash away your sins. And he keys off of what's known as an aorist in Greek, having previously called upon his name. We are saved by calling on the name of the Lord. It's an act of faith. And we give evidence of that faith by being baptized such that it is the calling and not the baptizing that affects the cleansing. The agent of spiritual cleansing is faith in Christ. And so Paul referred to faith uh, here in Acts 22.6 as calling on his name. Paul evidently experienced regeneration on the Damascus Road when he believed that Jesus of Nazareth was the promised Messiah predicted in the Old Testament. Remember, what will you have me to do, Lord, he says. He experienced believers' baptism in water after he called on the Lord. We know that the Apostle Paul was saved on the Damascus Road and not at the encounter he had with Ananias for several reasons. First, as noted in Galatians 1, which I just quoted, it tells me that the gospel was given directly to Paul by Christ and not later on by Ananias. Secondly, in verse 10 of this chapter, Paul asks the question, what shall I do, Lord? And so it's clear that he had already submitted to faith in Christ. And third, for you linguists, the Greek heiress participle, translated calling on his name, refers either to action which is simultaneous with or before that of the main verb. And so you can render it having arisen, be baptized and wash away your sins, having previously called on his name. So through believers' baptism, Saul of Tarsus gave evidence of his faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah. So again, Scripture has to interpret Scripture and to make this an act that is uh, part of the plan of salvation does not dovetail what he has said earlier in Acts 22, much less the other two places he gives his testimony. So it is the calling and the believing and not the baptizing that affects the cleansing. All right, um, who are the subjects of baptism in the Bible? In the New Testament, the only people we ever find that are water baptized are those who have exercised faith in Christ. The Bible is clear that people are to be converted first and then be baptized. Many refer to this as credo-baptism. It's just a term from uh, the Latin credo. We get our word creed. So based on the creeds of the faith, they call it credo-baptism. Why? Because most of the ancient creeds affirmed first regeneration followed by baptism. So it's often called credo-baptism, or sometimes we use the term post-conversion baptism or believer's baptism because the order is always first believe and then be baptized. So Christ taught believer's baptism in the Great Commission. Uh, let's read the Great Commission from Matthew chapter 28. Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The main verb in this text of scripture is make disciples. And then there's a number of participles that gain their force from the main verb. Baptizing, teaching, so forth, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. 
So Christ's order is clearly conversion and then baptism. So disciples or converts were to be made or won to Christ, and then these disciples were to be baptized and instructed. So this verse is often used by different parachurch organizations out of its context to say that what Jesus is saying when he says make disciples is, um, you know, train up people after they're saved. Well, he teaches that later on in the verse when you teach them all that he taught us. But lay that aside, he is saying make disciples, make converts. Of who? All nations. So that's in deference to Matthew 15, 11, where he gives a limited commission. Don't go to the way of the Gentiles. Don't even go to the Samaritans. Only go to the Jews. Now he broadens the commission, and so about 400 years ago, we, didn't, we started calling it the Great Commission because Jesus made it greater at this point in his ministry. Go to every nation, to all the Gentiles. You have freedom now. I've done what God made, uh, what God promised Messiah would do for the Jews. That's been done. Their rejection basically has been sealed in a lot of ways. So now we go to all nations. So his order is important. And so it's really does the verse an injustice to say that when Jesus says, make disciples, that it means do discipleship. Because he's saying, make converts. As you go, there's a participle, teaching, baptizing, three participles. They all gain their force from make disciples. You make converts as you're going. And you baptize a new convert. Usually, as we'll see next time, Many times people were baptized the same day, the same hour. In fact, there's a whole denomination of Baptists. They're called immediate Baptists. You say, there's such a denomination? Yes, there is. Just like there is a primitive Baptist. And there's 250 Baptist denominations in the United States. Now, you know, there's, there's a lot of them. One is called immediate Baptists. And their argument is, you get saved, we're going to go right out front right now if we got a pond. Immediate. Same hour, same day. And that was not necessarily a bad thing and that that was often done in the first century. But now we live in a day where there's so much confusion over what baptism is, what it means, how to do it, that people need a little bit more instruction because there's been so much error that has come in. They didn't have to live with that error in the early church. It was a lot purer in that respect. So you make converts, you baptize them, and here's the discipling teaching them all that I taught you to observe. That's the discipling part of it. Point three, he also taught that his command and promise applied to the end of the age. Lord, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. There's actually another group of so-called evangelicals who say that baptism only applied for a short time frame, and we shouldn't even do it today. But again, the fact that you've got this promise that he'll be with us to the end of the age, and again, it's a really quirky position. That's why you probably never heard of it before. Um, but it tells me that this was not binding only in the first generation of believers. And so Presbyterians use this, as I'll hope to show you next time, sometimes to say, well, the believer's baptism or post-conversion baptism was only binding to the first generation. And I'll show you their argument next time, but let me just summarize it. Just as uh, the first generation of adult men who were circumcised were obviously not infants, Abraham and all his servants, and after that on the eighth day, little infant, boys, 
So they will argue that the first generation of believers, because they can't argue against some of these plain texts, were people who consciously could make a decision for Jesus. You can call them an adult. You could call them a young adult or even a child. But they were consciously able to make a decision. So they can't get around that. But then they say, well, that was just what they did in the first century, just like Abraham and his adult men, but now we do little infants. And so we'll, we'll think our way through that a little bit next time. But the command here, make disciples, make converts, not do discipleship, make converts, baptize them, then do discipleship, teach them, that whole scenario of commands is binding until he comes again, the second coming. Significantly, when Christ told them to go to all the nations, he did not tell them to circumcise those who became disciples. Instead, they were to baptize them, suggesting a clear break with traditional Judaism and any Old Testament parallels to circumcision. Notice, too, that they were baptized into the name Baptize them in the name, not the names, implying both, one, the triunity of God and an allegiance to Father, Son, and Spirit. You know, like, for instance, most of you know John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them that have believed in his name. What do you mean his name? Well, his name represents all that he is. So when we talk about believing on the name of Christ, we're, we're identifying with his person. His name, Lord Jesus Messiah, represents who he is and what he has accomplished for us. And so in the baptismal formula, we are affirming the triunity of God, not in the names. There is one God who exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons, but we're affirming each member of the Godhead. So it's, there's an, an affirmation of allegiance to the Father, Son, and Spirit. We better end it right there. We'll pick it up here uh, next time, Lord willing. All right, I will tell you these are the four most difficult verses in the New Testament of baptism, and I, I wanted to take it a lot slower and explain them in more detail, but I have sermons on all of these. So anyone listening who wants to go back, like the First Peter text, the Acts text, uh, I spend an hour on each of these passages, but we'll never get through this course if I, if I do that. But this is for your personal reflection and study. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes wherever you might be, and we invite you who are at home to join with us in prayer as we go to our Father in His throne of grace. Father, you are faithful, and we rejoice and rest in that tonight. And as we've heard, we are living in challenging days, but you are sovereign and your providence extends to every detail. And we are so grateful to know you and to know that you are in charge of this world in which we live. I thank you for our opportunity to study the word tonight. I know, Father, we've studied the meat of the word and meat takes time to chew and ponder and digest. And so I pray that for those who are challenged by these passages tonight, they might go home and ponder them and think about them and bring their questions back if they have them that we might be able to uh, teach these truths simply and plainly, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.